from Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Music City, this is The Safety Exchange. Where we exchange ideas for businesses on common sense loss control and risk management, so you can focus on what matters most. I'm Larissa Featherstone, CEO of Johnston & Associates and AkiSure Claim Services. And I'm Justin Gray, Director of Loss Control for Johnston & Associates, and this is The Safety Exchange. Thank you for joining us. Justin, I'm super excited about today's guest and show. Um, we're going to be talking about physical therapy, which is an integral part of any work comp injury recovery, um, but sometimes can be a little controversial. Our guest today, he's got a doctorate in manual therapy and is a board certified orthopedic clinical specialist and is currently the chief clinical officer at Results Physiotherapy, which has locations across nine states. He is also the director a program development and a senior lecturer for the Institute of Advanced Muscular Skeletal Treatments and adjunct faculty at Belmont University. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Craig O'Neill. Thank you very much, Larissa. I appreciate you uh, having me here today. I'm excited about our, our topics and discussions. I'm excited too, Craig. Tell me a little bit in your um, bio, it says you have a doctorate in manual therapy. I know most people talk about physical therapy or occupational therapy. What's the difference between manual therapy or explain the difference? So manual therapy is really just a subset of, of standard physical therapy of, and generally speaking of orthopedic physical therapy. So manual therapy is a, a philosophy of thinking, examination and treatment. So it's a lot of people think, okay, I'm a manual therapist. So I just have a lot of techniques or tools in my bag, which is true. Uh, but really manual therapy is uh, I'm thinking about things in a very comprehensive manner and the ability to examine and treat a patient uh, at a uh, at a very specific but yet a very global level at the same time. So if I'm a patient, what would be kind of the different experience for somebody who's going to someone with manual therapy training versus traditional physical therapy training? Is it similar? Are there differences? Uh, there would be a lot of similarities. I think the biggest difference would be is, is in the examination and then the thought process behind the treatment decision making. And so what that would look like is uh, the evaluation would look to find what is the most sensitized tissue or the sensitized area of pain within the system and then work out, is that something that's going on, you know, in, in the patient's body, if you will, or is it something that is centrally sensitized, which we, you know, we now know those things can occur from the brain, that pain is processed centrally. Uh, so really thinking, thinking about things differently and then integrating that into a manual therapy mindset. Interesting. So I'm always curious, what made you decide to go into physical therapy, manual therapy? Is there... It's always interesting to me the pathway in which people take to get to their current careers. Yeah, you know, uh, for me, physical therapy ended up being a no-brainer. I was, you know, my decisions were: do I become a school teacher, uh, a physician, an engineer, uh, or something with uh, exercise? And uh, so you put all those things together, and that's uh, pretty much what physical therapy is. And then on the manual therapy side, is you know, I went through my training, had experiences. Uh, you know, I saw manual therapy performed on a patient and saw some very immediate functional strength changes uh, that I went, that's what I want to do. It was very clear to me when I saw that there was, there was no question that was the path I wanted to go on. I'm, I'm probably going to get us off track, but I, I have to ask, I saw your hobbies and we're looking at your body. You play guitar. 
I do play guitar. What what kind of music are you into? Uh, you know, I, I love all types of music. Uh, this morning I was listening to uh, Jazz Sabbath, which is the jazz version of Black Sabbath songs. <laughs> oh, nice. So if that gives you any indication of my diversity in, uh, in music, uh, th- that's probably yeah, it. That's awesome. I, I'm a huge music fan. I love all kinds, but I don't know if you ever heard of Fish, but that's this my... Is- I'm obsessed. Huge, I'm obsessed with fish. I, I see him all the time. Yeah, so. uh, that uh, I'm drawing, drawing a blank on the front guy's name, but he's so Trey. Good. Trey Anastasio. Yeah. Yep. Oh, he's a phenomenal musician. Yeah, he is. He is. Um, what else do you like to do? Kind of when you're not doing the normal day to day. Yeah, pretty much anything outside. Love to ride bicycles. Have raced bicycles uh, at the local and national level for 20 plus years. Oh wow. And, racing even uh, yep wow and then my uh my wife and i coach a local uh, high school team through uh, there's a, a grassroots program that's growing like by 50 percent every year uh so that that keeps us busy outside of uh, just normal work activities i'm, I'm interested in, in having you on especially because i deal with you know a lot of clients of ours that, that that they get frustrated a lot of times because they'll they'll say well why is it that it's automatic somebody's they just prescribe them physical therapy for 13 weeks for the shoulder and then i already know they're going to do that 13 weeks and then they're going to have to wind up having surgery anyway so it's I, that's the frustration i get a lot of times from from our clients is like why why are we doing this you know yeah it's a, it's a really good question and particularly in the healthcare environment today and and i think we're, we're struggling as uh, you know, the medical world struggling in general to really follow the evidence uh, as best as we can. And so there's a lot of things of mixed of tradition. And this isn't unique to orthopedist or PT. This is everyone. So uh, I'm not calling any particular profession out. It's there's the traditional things of what we believe. Then there's the modern evidence of what we know. And then there's the problems with evidence that's not all, you know, all encompassing of everybody all the time. And uh, but but in that, um, you know, it's trying to figure out through the system what are the best pathways that are the most cost saving, that are the uh, the least invasive, uh, the least number of risks that go with that. And uh, it's it gets pretty complex pretty quickly. And so let me give an example is, you know, one of the issues we have right now are, are you know, with diagnostic imaging. And uh, so. If, if you go image a shoulder right now, if you have a pain-free shoulder, there's about a 60% chance you're going to find something that looks like pathology on there. So the, the finding of pathology and the presence of pain are, do not correlate. So let's say I have shoulder pain now and I go get imaging and I still have a high likelihood of finding stuff, you know, pathologic, broken, torn, inflamed, strained, all the same stuff that shows up on shows up on pain-free people and also the same things that show up on people once they've finished rehab and they're pain-free. So those things don't go away. And so if if you start there and we make so many of our decisions based on what the picture found, so you've got a partially torn cuff, you've got an inflamed bursa, you've got degenerative changes of the AC joint or a hooked acromium or all these together in one person, then that puts both the practitioners and the patient on a path that something's broken and wrong in my shoulder in the belief that the only fix is surgery. So what you're saying is you have somebody, and I know a lot of people say, um, we hear clients, let's just go ahead and get an MRI of their shoulder. So what you're saying is that we go an MRI, everybody's shoulder that's here today, we might find something that's wrong, but none of us have maybe shoulder pain, so it may not be the root of the pain. Is that what you're getting at or the root of the solution or? 
that's exactly what the what the literature suggests is that it's it's very difficult to make a clear decision anymore because we know there's such a high rate of false positives. So meaning a number of people are asymptomatic, but with lots of diagnostic imaging findings. So do you find that doctors are wanting to do more? Um, are you finding it's the doctors that want to go ahead and do the imaging sooner? Or is it the patients that are wanting to get the imaging? Or is it a mix of all of those? It's, and- it's all of the above. It's, uh, you know, it's everything from payers to patients uh, to, you know, we get plenty of patients that go, I just need to get an MRI. And if you ask them why, they, they don't really know. But systemically, as a you know, society, it, it's a belief that that's part of the medical process. And what's interesting, particularly in the in the comp world, and I may get the stats wrong, but it's it's directionally this way, is that uh, diagnostic imaging of of work comp patients with low back pain, the rate of uh, disability claims almost doubles for those that do have MR versus those that do not. Interesting. When you say rate of disability, you mean the them being off work or long-term being off work? Uh, long-term. Not going back to work. Correct. Which is which reinforces this idea that the findings of the diagnostic imaging is a big, big influence in the way that the patient thinks about it and potentially the way that the, uh, that the physicians and therapists think about it. Well, I think if you find out, you know, if you test positive for anything, whether it be a meniscus tear or a back injury, it's going to make you second guess every time it twinges, whether or not you're hurting it worse and causing potentially more damage to it. Uh, That psychological fact of just knowing you have something wrong, whether it's affecting you or not. Mm -hmm. It reinforces the belief uh, that, that something is broken or messed up and it can only get better with, with a repair. And so if you continue to hyper focus on that, and then you attach that with, you may not be happy with your employer, or you may not be happy with your boss, or you may not be a happy person with life, or you've got a lot of things going on in your world of, uh, you know, divorce or stress or death or disease, and you put all that together. Uh, and then now you have, you know, the human experience, but now you have something that people focus on maybe overly. And then they have this belief that, uh, that work broke me and I'm, and I'm now disabled because of work. Do you find a lot of times after imaging pain gets worse if it's positive or is there a correlation at all between between the imaging sometimes and and the perceived pain or pain so, people yeah, are that, feeling? That's a that's a big question and let me try to explain that a little okay. bit. So so number one imaging is fantastic. It's the number one thing to find the stuff that we worry about, which right. would be tumors, fractures, infections, you know, big tears, you know, a, a, a something that's blocking motion. Like it's really good at those things. It's very poorly correlated with uh, what is the source of the pain. Now, two things happen when patients get imaging. Uh, you know, one is, okay, I have an explanation and that settles some people. They go, okay, I've got this or that. Where, we, where it becomes difficult is when someone has imaging and they find these normal standard degenerative changes and they fixate on that and they go, I cannot get better because of those findings. I think it's interesting. I've seen work comp patients um, and maybe in imaging patients in general that have a lot of pain. And I guess it can go both ways because I've seen the reverse be true, too, to where they have very small findings and then they feel better. They think, oh, well, I'm, I can push myself a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm OK to, you know, structurally, I'm fine. So yeah. it, it seems to make them better. Um, and it's interesting to hear also kind of the reverse can be true because I think sometimes you focus on either one or the other. What would you say would be the, uh, you know, 
I hear in the work comp world, sometimes they say, you know, just go ahead. If within a week or so they're not feeling better, you should just go ahead and do imaging. What would be kind of the guideline in a perfect world? And there's not a perfect world, obviously, in which you would kind of recommend or. I love that question. Uh, You you teed me up for a very easy answer. And that is uh, simply follow the American College of Radiology guidelines, which are extremely clear that uh, and then uh, an extremely good article that was put out in the Lancet last year. It says that, you know, no one with just acute back pain should have imaging uh, unless there are any any red flags whatsoever, because it serves no purpose. There's very low correlation between the findings and the pain and or the treatment pathways. Now, if someone has progressive neurologic deficit, meaning they're numb, they're, you know, they're, they're losing bowel and bladder function. There's yeah, absolutely that right. person is imaging very quickly and often they need surgery very quickly. Uh, but I think simply for the spine, it's just follow those guidelines. And, and, it's, and when you look at the literature, uh, it's really mixed on. It's used inconsistently on when it should be used, but it's also used inconsistently uh, that imaging isn't used when it should be used. So it's, it's really let's just look at the literature and follow those pathways for best practice. Interesting. I, and I think you're right. I think people tend to go, go away from, from that. And they go off their gut feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads to frustration, I think, on both sides where they're not getting imaging and maybe they should or they treated a while and they they were looking, they d- didn't find their diagnosis and then the other side of that too. So I know there's one controversy Justin was talking about, people complaining about PT, but also in the work comp world, sometimes we hear people talk a little bit about the therapist diagnosing, whether or not the therapist really has a good gauge on helping in the diagnosis process. And I know there's some other people even within our own office where we handle claims and work on safety, there's some people that feel strongly that they really count on the therapist to give feedback. Mm-hmm. There's others that feel very strongly the therapist should stay out of that. That's meant for the doctors. What's kind of your take on mm-hmm. on the therapist role in helping with the diagnosis and treatment? Yeah, look, I, I think we have to always look at medicine as a team effort and get away from the silos of treatment and understand that you know a, a therapist is highly capable of giving a differential diagnosis, particularly when it comes to movement and or the source of pain. Now, what we can't do is determine, is this cancer? Is this an infection? We, what, we, what we can do is go, I don't think this is musculoskeletal and therefore it should not be in my office. And there's, we, we do that all day, every day. That's right. the last thing we want to treat. On the other hand is, is that we're trained in differential diagnosis. And we look at the literature on this, we are on par with orthopedic surgeons on the differential diagnosis ability with a thorough musculoskeletal exam. And actually we're far ahead of primary care physicians when this is looked at, again, not, this, is, this isn't our literature, this is in, independent, is that we, we're highly skilled in doing this. And in that, what I think is even further is number one, we have the time to do a thorough exam. Number two, we're not relying on musculoskeletal imaging. uh, So therefore, the physical exam is extremely good. And then number three is our system that we own, where a dermatologist owns the skin, is is movement. So our specialty is movement. So we understand human movement better than any other profession uh, that's out there. And that includes orthopedic surgeons and physiatrists. And like, that's our specialty. They know plenty of stuff we don't begin to know. So this isn't a... I'm better than or more than conversation. It's going, this is, this is where we each contribute to the system in our way. And I think when we can, we can do that in a, in a team effort as opposed to a solid effort, it supports the, uh, the, the patients much better. 
it's interesting you kind of use that team effort. I know when we talk about safety or workers comp, I always tell our clients that, you know, there's a toolbox and the hammer doesn't do everything. The screwdriver doesn't do everything. You really need everything in your toolbox. And it sounds like that's a similar type approach that the therapists are bringing a different, different angle, a different point of view. You talked about differential diagnosis and, uh, I think that's always a interesting subject. You have somebody, and I, I think as adjusters and employers and case managers, sometimes you really get focused on, on how the person says they get injured and trying to find a direct correlation. But then we'll find, you know, it, we thought it was a shoulder injury or something, and it ends up being a neck injury um, that's really the source of the pain. Is that something that therapy can help um, or a physical therapist can help with that? that type? Is that what you mean by the differential diagnoses? Yeah, I think that's a large part of it. You know, a common thing would be, okay, I've got, um, you know, shoulder pain or neck pain. It hurts over the top of my shoulder, it hurts down in my arm, it hurts somewhere in the, you know, the upper quarter. And I think that's where therapists are really exceptional of doing that thorough screening of the neck to say, is this, is it coming from the neck? And there are very simple procedures, which we can determine that versus if I only tested the shoulder, a lot of the tests for the shoulder might be positive, but again, it's influencing the neck. So that could be that it's driving, it creates the, the, the pain in the shoulder. So then think about that a step further. If you then do shoulder injections or surgery or PT on just the shoulder and nothing, nothing gets better. And then it turns out, oh, actually it was the neck the whole time. That's, uh, that's frustrating for everybody, for, for the surgeons, the payers, the patient, the em- employers, everyone. It's expensive too. Yes. Do you, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that I guess it's kind of the psychology of it too. But so a lot of the challenge you probably face is not only find out what's wrong, but you're also fighting the patient themselves because they've already got the preconceived motion that, yeah, my knee's messed up. In actuality, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it is something else and you've got to kind of probably try and you've got to prove to them that it's not through therapy. That's interesting to me, the battles that you have to face with what you do. Yep. Again, referencing the literature where, where you, where we struggle the most as, as a team, you know, medical teams is when someone is fixated on that it's a biologic or a, a, a pathoanatomical problem and they can't let go of that. So that's our biggest challenge. And those are the folks who actually end up doing the worst versus understanding a meniscal tear is normal. Osteoarthritic changes are normal. And that the, the best thing for all of those is exercise over and over and over uh, of which we provide. But if you believe you're broken or busted, then you believe exercise is the worst thing you can do. So that's where often I think the, the system gets frustrated is we're dealing with beliefs. And so not just physical findings. Yeah. And people are in pain, but they don't necessarily know that that pain's maybe not what they think it's coming from, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, the, the experience of pain is a very big, big topic. Uh, and, and so and many, many drivers of that, uh, of, of what causes the pain experience and, and be, the, the patho anatomy being one of one of many, uh, and not a predominant feature. Yeah. I got one and it may be controversial to ask. Um, what are your thoughts on, on chiropractors? I'm just curious. No, I think, uh, you know, uh, I think chiropractors are extremely skilled uh, clinicians in the sense that they can they can manipulate and pop and crack uh, and, and very commonly now moving into exercise pathways and, uh, and nutritional things. I think they do. A, a, they're, they're doing a nice job on that. And they're, they're the best manipulators around. 
that being said is there's also some and, and, and becoming less and less and less. And e even the chiropractic profession is trying to stop this, but, you know, to make claims that, you know, manipulations improve the immune system amid COVID-19. Um, that's, <laughs> that's not a, that's not evidence based and there's no one, no one has the articles to support those claims. And so, uh, you know, to manipulate babies, things like that. I just, I just think it's irresponsible. It's, it's definitely interesting. I know, um, I think a lot of therapy started around athletes first and, and focused on, um, sports rehab and, you know, in the one thing I've always found interesting about, uh, results physiotherapy is that y'all were started by, by athletes. Um, it's got kind of a different story. And I shared with you that, you know, I've got a personal tie to results. My daughter, um, is a two time cancer survivor and had some major issues with neuro, um, neuropathy from chemo and y'all worked with her really on a more athletic, getting her more functional type way years ago. But can you tell us a little bit about that story? I think it's it's interesting coming at it from a, a sports kind of functional perspective of results. Yeah, glad to. So uh, Tracy Calkins was an Olympic swimmer that was uh, from from the Nashville area. And, uh, you know, she as she traveled the world and, uh, you know, got treatments around the world, she was exposed to uh, orthopedic manual therapy. And then when she would come back to the U.S., particularly the South, she said, look, I want to get the treatment that I got in Australia or I got in, you know, in, in England or wherever she was. And uh, and it didn't really exist in predominance here. Right. And so that was uh, that was really the catalyst for the start of results physiotherapy. We used to be called Tracy Calkins Physiotherapy. So she and her family, you know, were initial investors in the startup of the of the organization. And uh, and then as as it grew and, uh, you know, they they wanted to you know, divest their, their, uh, part of it. That's when, uh, we, uh, another physical therapist, Greg Spurgeon came on board and took over their part. And we, that's when we turned into results physiotherapy. So what is the Australian connection with results? Uh, is Tracy from Australia? What's that? No, she, she married in Australia. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> and, uh, and so then, um, you know, the, uh, and, and I can't tell you all the intimate relationships right. there of how, you know, Australians came to, to start. Uh, but it was, uh, it was purely, uh, it was all Australians that started results and it was very much, let's bring the manual therapy, uh, international approach to, uh, to the U S. So is the manual therapy approach, uh, more European or more international approach than the traditional American approach to therapy? Yeah, it's uh, traditionally uh, the manual therapy approach has been much more of an international thing. And uh, and for a long time, you know, PT, and we've always had manual therapy. So it wasn't like we didn't have it right. and then we had it. Uh, but the predominance and the structure and the way it was taught and the part of the, you know, the PT school curriculums, uh, that was really, that was increased over the last 25 or 30 years, quite a lot, you know, every year a little more. I, I find it interesting that... Um in therapy and medicine in general, people, it seems nowadays are getting into a little more holistic view, um, whether that be, you know, you know, I think it's more common, you know, to eat a more pure diet, um, you know, Chinese medicine is becoming, and one of the newest things we hear about in work comp, and I, I think it's fascinating, I, I know y'all do it, is dry needling, um, which is somewhat similar, I guess, to acupuncture. Can you tell us about how that works? Sure. And yeah, it looks a lot like acupuncture, but it's applied in a in a really different philosophy, technique, all, all many many things. And so it's 
you know, the, the way that, that we teach and practice trigger point dry needling is, you know, you're, you're simply just taking a needle and putting it in a trigger point, looking to get a change within the system. And beyond that, it's pretty uh, argued and uh, debated on exactly what happens, why it happens. You know, is it placebo? Is it an actual physiologic effect? Is it uh, if I believe it's going to work or if the patient believes it's going to work, does it have a better effect? And the answer is yes. Uh, so, so uh, is there, is there science behind it now or are we still pretty new with it? Still pretty new with the science, you know, and, and studies keep coming out. There was one that just came out on, uh, you know, using it across the board in chronic neck pain patients that the addition of dry needling was no more beneficial than, uh, than just standard therapy. Uh, but again, that's where, um, uh, you know, so that's that's support of saying, look, that's a population you probably shouldn't use it in. But then there are some smaller studies where they use it in people that are anesthetized. They use it, you know, uh, during uh, either right after a joint replacement, they do some dry needling and they tend to have better outcomes. So, again, probably not a really well done study there because such a small number of people that were studied. Uh, there is some evidence to support it in shoulder pain. Uh, but again, it's all limited. And generally speaking, you know, things like uh, trigger point dry needling and even manual therapy, as much as our, our business is built around it, is what we know about all of those is they're a short-term pain reliever. That's right. really the, the end of the day. But often that gives us that window to really get people more confident and comfortable in moving and exercising, which we know that's the, that's the key. The risk is, is that we have people believe that the dry needling or the manual therapy is the fix. In reality, the exercise, the progressive loading, the return to work programs, that's the real fix. And so it's that combining that, being very honest with ourselves and with our patients that, you know, that's how and when we, we can and should use manual therapy and dry needling. Um, it is a very effective tool, but it's short term and uh, it's, you know, but, but has plenty of, plenty of great case studies, uh, but overall the, uh, the, the, the big literature studies aren't highly supportive. So it's not something people go do long term. It's more what I'm hearing you say is this is something that allows people some pain relief so that they can continue with with the exercise. I know my husband had a meniscus tear surgery and it really took him doing weight training and pushing through the initial pain, which you don't want to do after you've had surgery. Um, so I, I think I would imagine that's a huge part of y'all's job is getting people confident that they can after an injury push through to kind of rehab that it's the two things there one is it, it is a you know front end treatment it's not something that people need ongoing to keep them good it's really it's a short-term pain reliever but to your point is that's the number one thing that we as therapists do is to coach people into going it's okay and good to move and understanding that at a physiologic level a biomechanical level and then really pushing people every single time to that next that next phase and very commonly even pushing them into and through pain uh, as opposed to going, you know, pain is terrible. Don't ever go there. That's uh, fascinating to me that I didn't realize that there's a lot of psychology to what you do. because You're having to prove to people that, yeah, you're 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 getting better. Um, but back to the dry needling real quick. I'm curious. I, I hate needles. I've had acupuncture done. Does it hurt though? Like the, I, I just, I think of dry needling as being way more invasive. So that's what I'm curious about. Uh, it, it definitely is. It, it is more invasive because typically we'll go very deep into a muscle. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the idea is to stimulate the trigger point, get it to twitch, do all of, all of those things. Uh, and it can be painful. 
uh, interestingly, uh, in my, again, this is not evidence. This is just uh, my experience is that uh, women tolerate it. No problem at all. Uh, but the men are very big babies when it comes to the needles. Uh, that would probably be true of all needles. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the men are the ones that pass out from drawing blood and other yeah. types of. Uh... Yep. My wife makes fun of me when I get a cold. She says, "I have to take you to the hospital now." So, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> the folks that work with me will hear me say this a lot, but I'm very skeptical of the shiny objects. So, so new techniques, new things that come out. I'm like. Yeah. Yeah, but are they really better than let's coach patients around movement? What's going on? Let's get them exercising. Let's use manual therapy to, you know, to help in that process. Um, and so I was hugely skeptical uh, of dry needling uh, when it, when we first came to our organization. And I had a couple of things going on, had some shoulder tendinopathy, and I had the uh, same thing with an Achilles. And I uh, had both of those treated with dry needling and uh, it was highly, highly effective. Again, that's an N of one. It's a case study. It's, you know, that's not good science. Right. And uh, but I, for better or worse, it made notable difference in my symptoms. And so that's that's what when I went to go, there's there's something to this. And I don't know what it is. It helped me whether I believed it or not. It helped me either way. It's very interesting. I can't imagine uh, getting a needle put into my shoulder would be one thing, but an Achilles tendon. Ooh. <laughs> the, the beauty of that one, I did it on myself. Did you really? <laughs> I don't know if that's a, it'd be hard to stick yourself. I would imagine maybe easier to stick someone else. So, yeah. Ooh. What What are your thoughts? And it's been the hot button thing for the, not a hot button thing. It's been a, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but with the opioid crisis, it's, it's been terrible. And, and what are your thoughts on, the use of opioids for pain management versus therapy itself. Man, that's a, that's a, that's a really significant social question. It's a system question. And, uh, you know, the, the opioid problem, and I'll try not to get too, uh, philosophical or opinionated on this, but the opioid problem, uh, was, Hmm. Oh, it's me, tough. I know. Let me, let me, hard let, me not let me bring the PT side to it Yeah, is, Physical therapy is an outstanding alter, alternative uh, pathway to treat patients in pain and to help them understand what's going on, uh, you know, what, how they can self-manage, how they can uh, understand what it is they have going, what are the tools they can use to go, you know, what they can do when they're hurting, how we can believe their, their movement patterns and their belief systems and many, many of those things. That's where we have uh, uh, just huge opportunity as a excellent alternative to the opioids. The opioids are uh, a terrible choice to pe treat people with musculoskeletal pain. Um, and, are, you know, other than maybe acutely postoperatively, but the risk there is you have many people who don't realize they're an addict until they go, I took opioids and it was the best thing I ever took. So they were the, they were the time bomb that went, this is my life has now changed. And that's really sad because a lot of it is it's tough for them to to decide that you know they went i need more of this their chemistry or their genetics or whatever that is drives them to that the other side is that i think there's a very large number of people uh, at least historically and the numbers look like they're getting better that have been on opioids that go i don't want to do this I, i'd give anything to have another pathway like anything to right. not be on these because they numb my whole life and, uh, and that's where PT is an extremely good choice for those folks. The other piece with the opioids is that, you know, 
the big challenge is the more you use, the more you need to use. Your body learns to tol you know, tolerate them and it starts to go, no, this is the, 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 the new norm. And people actually start to develop you know, opioid use pain. And that's a, then well, it's going, what's the point? The way I understand it, you're not actually fixing the pain anyway with the opioid. You're, you're just blocking the nerve from, from feeling it in a very layman's terms point of view. Yeah, it's it's it, it, unfortunately it's much more complex than that. Yeah. But that is that's the general consensus yeah. is it doesn't fix anything. It just numbs you to to the world. But it numbs everything. It numbs your thinking, your vision, your uh, you know your your motor skills, your motivation, your emotions. It numbs everything. I think the interesting part about any kind of addiction is you're not. You know, we tell our kids often, you don't know if you're going to be an addict till a lot of times you are the addict and. Um, I think, you know, I know people who are like, oh, I hate pain pills. I take one. They make me feel so funny. I mm -hmm. never want to take that again. And you have other people who are, who obviously really like it oh, a yeah. lot. Um, and, and it's got to be hard as um, in the medical field, knowing which one's which in the appropriate way. And I guess the best way is just to avoid it altogether um, is kind of the thought now. Yeah. Again, like everything, opioids absolutely have their place in medicine. And so it's, it's not like they're the, the most evil thing right. that's ever been, but the way they've been prescribed and used, uh, has, has not been best practice. And unfortunately was just massively influenced by the, uh, big pharma on the way that it was marketed. And you can still see what's happening now in other countries, third world countries of what those same companies are doing. And it's, it's a travesty. It's just super sad. Yeah. So kind of on a, in, in, maybe it ties directly into that a little different is, you know, another one of the things I hear from clients or we see within our own claims or injuries and people we work with, you know, you have the people and I often have to remind our adjusters and employers that most people do get better and even work injury people, they tend to get better with the therapy and the conventional treatment, but you do have those people and they're the ones everybody tends to remember who treat for a very long period of time, um, you know, you'll hear they had 155 visits of therapy and didn't get better. What, what are kind of the clinical, what, what, what would be your recommendation to employers or to anybody who's kind of dealing with that type of situation? What's kind of the next step for those people? Yeah, those, those are tough because again, it's multifactorial. You know, what are the motivations of the patient? What's going on with the relationship with the patient and the employer? What's the relationship with the case manager and the patient and the employer? You know, what, what's happening within the whole system? I can't think of any case that really requires 150 visits. However, I'm very aware that's happened uh, on, you know, more than one occasion. Right. And, you know, my, my view is, is that, you know, some things do take a, a, a year to get significantly better. You know, a major trauma, someone that's, you know, completely blown their knee apart. There's, but the majority of things, uh, are, that, that would be an unusual scenario. What are the things you look for? I mean, because I think you're right. There are cases where somebody does need a lot of therapy. Maybe they've got other things that are going on that's causing a slower healing process. Are there things you look for that you're like, okay, this person, this is necessary to keep going. They, X is happening versus we're not making any progress. This is kind of pointless at this. I mean, what do you, and that may be a difficult question to ask, but. It's, it's a difficult question to answer because there's no good, there's no good pathway to determine is this patient appropriate ongoing. And what we see in, in real life is that the patient will do better, really better for two weeks. And then they go backwards for two weeks. And then you're going, okay, now they're starting to make progress again. And then they slipped on the ice. And then, you know, so it's the, it's the back and forth as opposed to just this standard upward trajectory that makes it really difficult to, to go, all right, when are they ready to be done? Now, 
I think sometimes as therapists and, and again, this is why it has to be a team effort is coming together and going, can we really get them better with another 30 visits? And, and my answer commonly would be not, not better than what they could or should do on their own with an ongoing, you know, program. I'm interested in, you, you said you use the team effort a lot and, and this may be getting down to the actual nuts and bolts of what you're doing, but when, when somebody's come in and say they got 30 visits, are they generally going to see the same are they going to work with the same therapist or is it going to be kind of across the board? Yeah. So our, our model is to try to have that patient see the same therapist every single visit. So they see the progress. They don't have to tell their story again. They don't have to be reevaluated and have a whole different look at it. Now, d- does it happen that they'll see more than one? Absolutely. Because of a whole number of uh, variables of someone goes on vacation or right. the schedule doesn't work out. The patient can only come in at seven. The therapist isn't there till nine, you know? Yeah. But we, we make every effort to make sure that, you know, as a patient, Justin, you would see me every single visit uh, as much as possible. I would imagine that helps a lot, especially with getting to know that patient and knowing, okay, are they trying as hard today as they were the other day or, yeah. you know, that type thing. It's, it's a big difference maker. Yeah. So uh, we're sitting here today all six feet apart in this gigantic conference room. We've uh, sanitized down everything because of the COVID-19 virus that is affecting the world right now. I think it's interesting. I wanted to ask you, obviously there were people injured before. There's people still getting injured now and having concerns. How are you able to do therapy now? How How is everything, all the social distancing affecting affecting the therapy world? Yeah, so we, we had to make some pretty big decisions in that process of trying to figure out what's right for our, our therapists, what's right for our patients, what's right socially, uh, and then what's also right for the business of understanding that significant number of people are going to stop having elective surgeries or going to the doctor for back pain or headaches or uh, you know tendon problems. And so you know we, we made a big shift from treating uh, live patients in the clinic uh, and moving over to telehealth therapy essentially overnight. Uh, as all this stuff came on so fast. Uh, and in addition to that, we're providing uh, concierge in-home physical therapy. So we'll we'll have oh, a therapist go into your house, um, you know, treat you, obviously following all the infection control guidelines, masks, gloves, all the things that need to happen, but limiting people from coming into a, a physical therapy space with lots of other folks around. How is that going so far? I mean, it's got to be a very different model than the typical, especially with you being a more hands-on physical therapy type. How, how is that going? Yeah, it's surprisingly well. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we've had to do from a leadership side is, number one, make sure we have the infrastructure to do it. And then number two, make sure that our therapists know how to make that mental shift of going, I'm treating through a screen versus through touch. And we've done uh, just a ton of training on what does it look like? Let's, you know, we can't forget the things that matter, particularly in the comp world of, you know, as we evaluate or continue to treat someone as, you know, what are the things you have to get back to? What is it going to take from a conditioning, mobility, strength, you know, endurance standpoint to get back to, you know, full function within your job? And many of those things can be coached through a telehealth mechanism. Now, that requires a bit more. Uh, compliance and adherence to the plan in between. I shouldn't say it takes more. It, we have to be even better at behavioral change and ensuring those things are happening uh, through a screen as opposed to in person. You can, you know, I think sometimes you can assess those things a little bit better, a little bit easier uh, than you can through the screen. 
How is uh, our patients responding well to this? Are they responding? Are they open to this type of therapy or Absolutely. what's the response? Been? It's so far, again, surprisingly well. Some people at first went, no, I just don't see how you can do this. Then once they experienced, they went, this is fantastic. I don't have to go anywhere. This is super convenient. Um, I can you know, sign on right from the convenience of my own home. Uh, so I think it's just people understanding how do we do physical therapy through, uh, you know, through a screen. And, and it really comes down on the therapist to have a, uh, a very unique skill set of examination, motivation, coaching, assessment, you know, visual uh, assessment, because it's harder to do the, the, the hands-on assessment. But again, we're pretty creative with movement, so we can test strength super easy. So, for example, if I want to test your, you know, your functional squat, your ability to bend down, pick stuff up off the floor, I can just watch you do that and have you do it repetitiously, have you go grab a couple of milk jugs, have you go grab a, you know, the cat, whatever, and, and do that repetitively. And I, I know based on physiology that I can, what that looks like, where are you at, how are you progressing and what do you need to do next? You brought up, interestingly, the milk jugs or the cat, how that's got to be a challenge too. the equipment that people have or their home environments and how they're set up. It, to some extent it is. Uh, one of the things that we've learned is that to actually visualize people in their own homes with the, with the functional limitations they have. So for example, I have, you know, it's painful when I sit on my couch Well, I can have them, I can watch them sit on their couch. Uh, if it's climbing stairs or if it's, you know, carrying the dog food in or show me the setup, you know, if you can bring your phone or your computer and move it around. So it actually becomes almost more real life as opposed to the context of the PT gym. That's interesting. Uh, so how are you managing, you know, some people have great internet, other people, then there's the privacy laws and making sure that you've got secure. I mean, how has that all been worked out? Was this something you're working on before? Or is this all something we've had to do in the last couple of weeks? Yeah. So very much something we've all had to do in the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, the, the federal government relaxed the, some of the uh, privacy laws with telehealth so to make sure that people were still taken care of. Uh, that being said, we picked up a, a, a platform that is fully, you know, uh, HIPAA secure, has all the, the standard um, mechanisms that are needed for, you know, uh, security. It's great to hear that this is working. I know we had worried in our own office about, you know, someone who had had, say, shoulder surgery, if they if they aren't getting in there and moving and talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the evidence or if there's evidence of how quick people need to get into the therapy. It seems like a much bigger push than it used to be a while back um, to get people in immediately and get them moving. Do you think that this is a, the telehealth is able to kind of bridge that gap for those people or is there concern that y'all have? I think there's some concern, you know, for the post-surgical patient, the, uh, the ability to do passive range of motion, manual therapy, joint mobilizations, all those things, I think are, you know, they're a key part of many post-operative programs because for example, uh, a large rotator cuff repair would be passive range of motion only for six weeks. And so to have the therapist get in, mobilize and help, you know, really guide the patient on how to do their, their exercises uh, without putting, you know, overly stressing the repair, you know, it's obviously one of the skilled services that we provide. So those are challenging. Those are, those are uh, a big challenge to do through telehealth. I, one thing I find interesting, even in our own offices, and, and you talked about a lot of this is with your own office come just in the last couple of weeks, you've had to put and implement plans. And I know 
for years, we're a very collaborative in-person type environment for, for our own business. And so we've talked about working from home, but it's always been more in, in the future. You know, we, we toyed with it, whereas now we've got, you know, everybody really working from home full time. I know we've had discussions in our own office as to what's worked well and what we think we might do in the future. Do you see a place for the telehealth in the future or tele PT in the future for y'all? Or are you looking forward to just getting everybody back into the clinics? Uh, so yes, on both. <laughs> uh, very, very much looking forward to getting back to uh, business as quote usual. Uh, I don't think we'll probably go back to um, what business as usual looks like for some right. time, you know, uh, but from the telehealth question is, yes, it, it will become a standard part of our, our process, another platform that we can provide uh, great care for patients with. So where do you see the virus is, you know, not an issue anymore? Where do you see it really fitting in? Um, I mean, since our audience has more work comp, but in the work comp space, where do you see teletherapy fitting in in the future? Where would it, where is that ideal case? What is, what, what does that look like? You know, it's it's yet to be determined, but what I envision is that it probably becomes a combination of live office visits and, and telehealth, particularly as you get further down the road of check-ins. Let me see how you're doing. Let me, let me take a look at your uh, exercise program. What questions do you have? What problems are you having? Um, you know, and really empowering people to take ownership uh, of their care. So that that's what I envision as we sit today. You know, if we look at this 12 months from now, it might look drastically different right. from that. So almost like a bridge to the home exercise program to where they're not just turned loose, possibly some type of, you know, bridge for that. Is that what you're thinking? Is that what you mean? I think so. And I, and I think the other thing that is a big opportunity is for us to provide top level care in communities that we don't have brick and mortar clinics in. So, uh, you know, rural, rural areas, uh, other markets, you know, we can bring our level of expertise and training and care uh, to to folks that, you know, that normally wouldn't have access to us. That's an interesting point I hadn't thought of. And I know it's a challenge on the work comp side. Sometimes we've got people that do live in very remote. They may be 50 minutes or a couple of hours from really the um, closest PT place. And that's not realistic to go a couple of times a week. And sometimes those people don't do as well. Um, so I think that's an interesting, we work with a population, work with a lot of trucking companies. And I've wondered, it, it's been something that's been talked about in the community with, you know, walk-in clinic visits, follow-up appointments, because especially if you have a long haul truck driver that's driving across country, they may be able to go back to work, but then they suffer from a rehab perspective because they're not able to go to all their therapy. So there's a balance and oftentimes a pull with employers and doctors. But do you think that this would be something that they can take on their mobile phone doing a truck stop or in the future? I don't see, there's no reason why they could not or should not. I, I, again, that's the beauty of it is that you can get, uh, you receive, you know, therapy virtually anywhere. Cool. I've got, you know, there's, there's one area I'd like to touch on. And I think, you know, and this is for those risk managers, safety directors out there, but I don't, I don't think people realize there's a lot you guys can do on the prevention of side of things and working with an employer you know, b before an injury happens with evaluating the, the, their work practices and, and the actual physical motion of it. Can you, can you speak on that or what, what are some of the things you can do? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, prevention, uh, prevention care within physical therapy is something that is, uh, it would be so much our bread and butter, but it's, I don't think it's utilized to the extent that is, uh, is the most effective. Uh, simply the way we look at it is, is it, it's, it's all about load management. And we think about this with runners, with athletes, with, you know, post recovery, whatever that is. But if, you know, if you take a very deconditioned person and you put them to a high physical job, 
and they're doing, you know, loading quicker than their body can adapt. Well, that's oftentimes where you get breakdown or injury or pain or whatnot. And so it's even looking at how do you, how do you integrate people into a new physical job? They have to condition to it, you know, no different than they're doing on the back end with like work conditioning. They have to condition back up to their job. It's the same thing on the front end of going, what level of fitness or conditioning do they need to do the role that they've been hired to do? I think that's that's interesting. We work with uh, some distributing clients that distribute beverages or you know products, and it's actually a very physical job unloading numerous boxes, stocking shelves. Um, you're driving the truck, and um, even people that are in great shape. That's a quite a, a big jump to go go from maybe doing nothing or you're working out three times a week to go into that type of physical job. Do you find that more of those injuries are, you know, they say people get injured more from, you know, lack of training sometimes and things like that when they first start. But do you think that there's also that decondition? It sounds like there's some deconditioning or maybe getting conditioned that can lead to some injuries too. Is that what? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's what I look at as load management. If I, if I load, overload before I'm ready, my system can't keep up with that. And therefore it it breaks down as part of the process to try to get stronger. And so that's, uh, so, so yes, it's really looking at that from a a fitness perspective across physical jobs. In that respect, can you, can you help employers with, you know, physical type work? Maybe, maybe they want to come up with like a a pre-employment physical standards type test. Is that something you guys can kind of look at with them and, and help them through that? Yep. We, and we provide that, uh, we provide that now from just the post offer, the poets, the post offer employment post testing. Offer, yeah. And, uh, but, but then also if, you know, if anyone's interested in developing, you know, fitness programs that are unique to their jobs, that, that would be our bread and butter. Awesome. Interesting. With, you know, a lot of em- employers out there ask me about FCEs and, and, how effective they are. Are they, are they effective, first of all? And what are your thoughts on, on doing those? And I guess, tell us what they actually mean. What is the FCE? Yeah, so an FCE is a functional capacity evaluation typically done at the end of someone's injury or rehab is sort of a final check of where do they, where, what's, their, what, what's their functional capacity or their ability to do their job. And, you know, number one, they're the gold standard. So there's really nothing different that you could, you know, uh, uh, use to get the same measurements. And, uh, and they're as objective as we possibly can get. So they're, you know, they're based on effort. They're based on perceived effort. They're based on a you know, standardized set of tests and measures and fitness and lifting and pushing and pulling. And so really to go what, what's going on here. Again, as humans, there's subjectivity to all tests and all efforts. So they're, they're not perfect by any means, but they are the gold standard. I would imagine there's probably a lot of variables that, that go into that, you know, talking about physical conditioning of the person too. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure that's all taken into account. But When you have um, a work comp injury kind of, you know, we've seen, we always encourage people that it's great to have them return to work. From a physical therapy standard, do you see that that helps them getting back into the workforce or, you know, is that is that something that helps on the therapy side to, to do that? What, what would be best practices for employers? If you, if you have somebody who's got your typical knee injury or shoulder injury and, and they're able to, you know, what would you encourage people if, if you were able to help employers with setting up those return to work type programs? Yeah, I think best practices are, and, and again, some employers don't have the ability to do this because jobs don't exist. So either right. you're highly physical or not. Uh, but, but I think best practices, if they can, 
come in and do something. And that's pretty much anything. So whether that's, you know, work at 50%, work half days, work, you know, have some regular routine and then get what we call graded exposure. So the exposing them back to what their job is in some capacity. Again, that's just not possible in many, many scenarios, but uh, in an ideal world, that is, that's the best. I've always thought it would be, and I, and I don't know that this is good advice for our employers, but if they can slowly increase the amount that they're able to do, you know, sometimes people put them as receptionists and that may be the only thing that they can have them do. But my feeling has always been that it was best if they can slowly increase what they're able to do so that it gets more and more close to their regular job. Is that something y'all would recommend or maybe that's not the best practice? You know, it's, uh, I don't know that you'd want to put your, uh, you know, your, your physical laborer into a, uh, a clerical role because it's not right. going to be their skill set. But if you can get them into some sort of a physical labor role, whether that's, you know, significantly reduced, I do think that's a really good option. Well, obviously within, you know, whatever the current restrictions or whatever their current yep. abilities are, it's just, uh, it can often be a big transition. Like you were talking about before, if they go from, you know, the guard shack or the receptionist to then out delivering beer or Pepsi or something yeah. like that all day long. It's a big jump. That's right. Justin, you got any final thoughts? I used them all. You used them <laughs> all. And the last question was my final thought, but Justin's no, I, I will say that I, I, I think it's been a viable, viable discussion for me. There's, I didn't realize all the things that you guys can do. And I don't think a lot of people out there really understand. They, they think of you guys as the torturers and, and I don't really want to go there because they're going to hurt me, but. Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits to what you guys do. And I think it's good, good information for people to know. Yeah, it's been great having, having Craig. I've got one final thing. So in researching you, Craig, I always like to, before anybody comes on, we research them a little bit, find out. And like I said, I, I feel like I do know a good bit about results, um, from my own daughter's treatment there, but I, I was watching a video you had done. Um, and you were talking and somehow my kid came in and stopped me. And so I pressed stop and then it jumped to the next video, which happened to be a parody of Little Nas X, according to my kids, uh, Old Town Road. It's called Old Treatment Road. And I have to say it was one of the more entertaining things I've watched in a long time. And we're hoping you'll let us use the uh the sound as we go out today but tell us about that uh, <laughs> that's something fun we try to do every year we put together a video of a bunch of our therapists uh you know making fun of ourselves making fun of the industry you know just trying to have a, a good time about things and uh we uh we, we did this video this year for our uh clinic director meeting where we have you know a couple hundred folks come in it was uh just a just let's have some fun with things. I realize this is a podcast and people can't see it. So I'd like to put a link to it. Um, uh, but the dancing in the video, the, the quality and uh, production that obviously went into this, I have to say was, was very top notch. And uh, you just said you do this every year. So what other songs have you done? <laughs> uh, what was, uh, what did we do last year? There was one that we uh, we did not post publicly because we were, we were poking fun at uh, a few too many things. So let, <laughs> let's, let's keep that just within us. Uh, what was that song? I'm drawing a blank. Oh, it was uh, uh, what's the guy with all the tattoos on his face? Oh, Post, post Malone. Malone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a Post Malone song. Uh, so we we did that one the year before. It was well, you, you chose an effective song on this one because. Larissa knows my thoughts on that song. I, it's not one of my favorites, but I must say it's been in my head 
ever since yeah. on Wednesday yeah. when we looked at I, I've, it. I've, I'm with you, Justin. I've, I don't I've like it. To watch, to watch the video numerous times now. So, yeah. um, and you you did a good job of uh, doing even the dance moves that, that Lil Nas does. So I was impressed. Well, Very there's impressed. a group, and I'll give a shout out to these guys, Mac and Cheese Media. Here. I saw Mac and Cheese at the bottom of it. They're Great uh, name. the guys that came in and filmed us, and they've done some really cool things for like to uh, for Nashville. Um, they've got some fantastic videos just about, you know, tourism in Nashville and uh, super, super uh, professional. Uh, so if anybody needs a good, good video crew, uh, these are your guys. All right. All right. Mac and cheese. All right. Well, Craig O'Neill, I really appreciate you coming out. Craig's with Results Physiotherapy. They have locations in Alabama, Kentucky, Georgia, Indiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, North Carolina and South Carolina and Texas. Thanks for coming today, Craig. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Larissa, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Justin, thank you very much. And uh, hopefully uh, you guys will have me back at some point. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for listening today to The Safety Exchange with myself, Larissa Featherstone, and my co-host, Justin Gray. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. And if you would like to be featured on a future podcast or have an idea for a topic, please leave us a comment on our social media. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at JA underscore safety or on Facebook and LinkedIn at Johnston and Associates. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, we're going to take you down our treatment road, Scap. Squeeze till you can't no more. We're going to take you down our treatment road, Doc. You, man, no, I can't no more. I think I hurt my back. My neck is really jacked. Tried to tie my shoes, but the pain came very fast. Running out the door, I tripped and hit the floor. Giving it some ice, but I'm going to need some more now. Can't nobody treat my problem. You can't treat my problem. I'm going to go call my mama. You can't treat my problem. I had a man come in, said his pain level's a 10. Thinks we cannot help, but his doctor recommends. His tragic story moved me, fell right on his booty. I told him it's my duty to help him get back moving. Fella, we can help that problem. We can treat that problem. Ice and ease him, gon' feel good. We can help that problem. Yeah, we gon' take you down our treatment road, clam. section let's do some correction starting with some flexion aiming for perfection kettlebell theraband bridging like the brooklyn tweaking my body squeezing pressing pulling pushing gotta keep it going exercises on my own now running down rodeo watch me walk without a limp wow got no stress i've been through all that they spend the quality time so i'm coming back wish i could foam roll back to that treatment road I wanna ride